morning. If you want to open your Bibles with me, we're going to be looking at two texts. You can turn to Acts 1, 1 through 11. Stick your finger there and then flip over just a a little bit before that text to John 16, 7. Acts 1 through 11 and, and John 16, 7. Those are found on pages 526 and 530 on the white and blue paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of those. Turn to page 526 and page 530. (laughs) Uh, This is actually the first sermon in a series of sermons on the Holy Spirit. Uh, For the next nine Sundays, uh, we are going to be considering the the person and work of the Holy Spirit. There seems to be a lot of questions uh, surrounding the the person and work of the Holy Spirit of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Uh, But at Veritas, we believe, as the the Nicene Creed states, that he is the Lord and giver of life, and he is to be worshipped along with the Father and the Son, and that means that we should uh, know some things about him, that we should know him, and and that we should know something of of how he's at work in our lives and in the world today. And so um, we want to learn more about the person work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so we're going to start that this morning looking at John 16, 7 and Acts 1, 1 through 11 to get a glimpse into his glory and power. Um, happy Mother's Day. Moms, we are so incredibly uh, thankful for you, for your sacrificial, your nurturing, your uh, steady love, Christ-like love uh, that you demonstrate in our church and in our families in this church. You're a precious gift. You're seen. You're appreciated. Uh, you are loved, and, and we hope that you feel that way today. Um, I should also, uh, in addition to saying Happy Mother's Day, I should say uh, Happy Ascension Sunday. Okay, Happy Ascension Sunday. Now, you may not know this, but this last Thursday was Ascension Day. So it was 40 days after Easter, 40 days after the day that, that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. Uh, and 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended from earth into heaven. Okay, and, 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 and we celebrate that on the church calendar uh, every year, 40 days after the resurrection, after Easter. Uh, and Jesus spent those 40 days, he spent those 40 days uh, teaching his disciples and eating with them and spending time with them and walking among them. Uh, and on the 40th day, he ascended into heaven and he was seated and exalted at the right hand of God in heaven. And, uh, and, and, and that was the sort of climax of the Easter season. This is the, the climax of the Easter season. This is the, the ultimate exaltation of Jesus. Jesus was exalted when he was raised on the third day, and he was ultimately exalted when he ascended to heaven and he was enthroned upon the throne of heaven and earth. And, uh, and so this is Ascension Sunday. At, uh, at this last Thursday was Ascension Day. And 10 days after Ascension, after the Ascension, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit out on the church. So that means that this upcoming Sunday, next Sunday, is the Sunday of Pentecost. Uh, and, and we're going to learn more and more about the Holy Spirit as, as time goes on. And, and we're going to begin this morning with looking at the Ascension. It's the ultimate exaltation of Jesus as he was enthroned uh, upon the throne of heaven and earth. And it's the transition out of the season of Easter into the season of Pentecost. Uh, and, and, and because that's the, that's the time that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to fill his people. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. We're going to dig into John 16, 7 and Acts 1, 1 through 11. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's word, and let's listen with reverence and joy. Let's look at John 16, 7 first, and then Acts 1, 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord with reverence and joy. 
Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Next 1, 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing to heaven as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and that it reveals Christ to us, that it reveals his, his birth and incarnation, that it reveals his life and teaching, that it reveals his, his sacrificial, atoning, propitiating death, that it reveals his resurrection and victory over sin and death forever, and that it reveals his ascension so that we can know that you have exalted him and that he is truly the king of heaven and earth, the one who has all authority over all of heaven and earth, who is seated above rulers and powers and authorities. And we thank you that he sent the spirit to us so that we could be the people of his rule and reign, so that we could submit to his rule and reign and represent his rule and reign on the face of the earth, in our homes, in our jobs, in our, in our places of, of employment and education, and in our neighborhoods. And Lord, we ask that you would use uh, this text, it is, that is, it is proclaimed into our hearts, to be an effectual means of sanctifying us, to, to help, uh, helping us be more faithful in doing just that. Lord, we need you now. Pour out your spirit upon us, we pray. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. So every week when we gather and we say the Apostles' Creed together, as we just did a few moments ago, we say that we believe that Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. But if we are, if we're frank, if we're honest, we never really actually give that much thought, do we? Um, in, In fact, to be even more frank, to be even more honest, uh, we probably think it's kind of weird 
And that's, that's okay. You can admit that. You, you can say that you think it's kind of weird. We might read texts like we just read in Acts 1 and just kind of gloss over it because of its strangeness to us. Uh, and, and apart from explaining to our kids and to our non-believing uh, friends uh, when, when they ask where Jesus is right now, the ascension just doesn't get much play from us. Uh, it doesn't get as much attention as the birth of Christ, as the death of Christ, or as the resurrection of Christ. You know, this last Sunday, like I just mentioned, was, or this last Thursday, rather, like I just mentioned, was Ascension Day. But no one got me a gift. No one got me a card. No one got me a chocolate bunny or, or, or basket full of candy. The Ascension Day just doesn't get as much play as Christmas or Good Friday or Easter. Uh, but understand this. I, I want you to understand this. The ascension of Jesus Christ is no less significant than the birth of Christ, than the death of Christ, than the resurrection of Christ. In fact, the ascension of Jesus Christ is the, the, the climax of the resurrection. And let me push it a bit further. Without the ascension, there would be no salvation. There would be no kingdom. Without the ascension of Jesus Christ, there would be no heaven for us, no church, no mission, None of that without the ascension of Jesus Christ. And here's a particular aspect we're going to kind of narrow in on this morning. If it were not for the ascension, we would not have the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in the same way that we do. That's why we're starting a sermon series on the Holy Spirit with the ascension of Jesus Christ. The ascension of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit are inextricably connected. And that's what we're going to kind of focus in on this morning. The ascension is significant in a lot of ways. And we're not going to cover all those ways this morning. We're just going to look at the connection between the ascension and the coming of the Spirit. So our big idea this morning is this, that in the ascension, Jesus releases his presence and power into our lives by pouring the Holy Spirit out on us. In his ascension, Jesus releases his presence and power into our lives by pouring the Holy Spirit out on us. And we'll explore that by looking at three aspects of our text this morning. Jesus ascended to be the king, first. Second, Jesus ascended to send the Spirit. And third, Jesus sends the Spirit to send us. So starting with Jesus ascended to be the king, uh, we we see in Acts uh, 1, verse 6, the evangelist of Luke, he he writes, uh, So when they had come together... They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Now, if you don't have much familiarity with the biblical story, this could be kind of a puzzling passage. It's easy to get sort of distracted by the, the verticality of it, if, if I could maybe make up a word. Uh, and, and because that can be sort of distracting, uh, it, we should say first what the ascension is not. The ascension is not a statement about cosmology or, or where you might be able to find Jesus on an astrological map. That's not what the ascension is. Yes, it's true that when the ascension took place, as Luke says, uh, Jesus was lifted up. He was obviously physically taken up, but that took place in order to visually represent that Jesus is being exalted in this event. Okay, so you know the first astronaut uh, into space, Yuri Gagarin, he said after he came back to earth, I looked and I looked and I could not find God. But the Bible has never communicated that heaven is 
you know, some, some sort of place inside of this universe. Uh, there, the, the Bible's never claimed that, that heaven is someplace up there. You know, heaven is just someplace above us. Uh, it's, it's another realm. It's another sphere, if you will. Christ's ascension can't be measured in space or time, in miles or in light years. Uh, heaven is another sphere. It's another realm. Sometimes the, the Bible talks about the heavens, and sometimes it talks about heaven. The heavens include the space of the universe above us. And heaven is another realm. It's another dimension. It's, it's God's space. It's God's place that he dwells. Uh, where, where uh, as one author puts it, where God is holy and experienced uh, and known. And the ascension here is Christ's exaltation to that place. That's how the writers of the New Testament will sometimes talk about the ascension. They'll often call it the exaltation of Christ. The ascension is where Christ is exalted to the right hand of God. The right hand of God, not meaning that God actually has a hand. God is not a physical being. He doesn't have hands. To say that God, he is, ex, he is exalted to the right hand of God is to say that he is exalted with all the full authority and power uh, of, of being king in the universe. At the helm of the universe is Jesus Christ. He's in control and in charge of all things. That's what it means to say uh, when Peter says in Acts 2.33 that Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God. That's what Acts 5.31 means when, when uh, Peter says God has exalted Christ to his right hand. Philippians 2 9. That's what it means when, when, uh, when Paul says that God has highly exalted Christ and given him the name above every name. That's what's being communicated here when Paul says that Jesus was taken up. And then Luke says something else interesting. He says that a cloud took him out of their sight. Okay, and, and again, this is visually significant. It's it's, uh, it's symbolic, not symbolic in the sense that it didn't happen, but it's symbolic in the sense that it's communicating something specific. And if you have much familiarity with uh, the Hebrew scriptures, it probably brings something very specific to mind. Probably brings Daniel 7 to mind. Uh, in Daniel seven thirteen and 14, the prophet Daniel prophesies about the ascension. And it tells about the ascension from a different perspective than that of the apostles. The, the uh, Acts 1 tells us about the ascension from the perspective of earth, about the, the perspective of the apostles. But uh, Daniel 7 tells us about the ascension from the uh, perspective of heaven. Uh, it says, Daniel seven thirteen and 14, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, okay, think, remember, cloud, With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So you're starting to see the significance of this. This, this, uh, this event is Christ's exaltation, his enthronement. It means that Jesus' reign of king is not something that begins in the distant future. It means, it means that, that, that he is king right now. That when you slept last night, Jesus was on the throne of heaven and earth, reigning and subduing his enemies and carrying his mission forward in the earth. His ascension doesn't mean his absence from the earth. It means the magnification of his presence in the earth. As as Paul says in Ephesians 4.10, he ascended that he might fill all things. Nor does the ascension mean the cessation of Christ's work in the earth. Instead, it means the commencement of his work in cosmic proportions. 
The, the work of Christ moves forward in the earth in cosmic proportions because he is seated on the throne and he is king and in charge and in control of all things as the God-man. And, and we see this being communicated in a really specific way in Psalm 68, 18 and in Ephesians 4, 8. Psalm 68, 18 says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. And now in Ephesians 4, 8, Paul quotes this very verse, but he, he changes it and he talks about it in reference to Christ's ascension. He says, when he ascended on high, he left a, a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. If you notice the difference, he replaces you with he. And instead of receiving gifts, it says that Christ gave gifts. And what are we to make of that? We need to understand that when Psalm 68 was originally written, apart from its sort of Christ-centered interpretation, it celebrated King David's ascent to the throne of Jerusalem after his victory. It's likely celebrating David's procession and ascent to the throne, either in 2 Samuel 6.12 or in 2 Samuel 5. Uh, and, And it was the celebration and the culmination of Israel's victory as God's people. And since Jesus is the son and Lord of David, the psalm is also, as Paul says here, a prophecy of his ascension to the throne of heaven. And instead of just celebrating the the ascent of King David to his throne in Jerusalem and, and the accumulation of his spoils for his victory, it celebrates the ascension of Christ to the throne where he distributes the spoils of his victory. He gives gifts to his people so that he might reign in the earth through them. I actually heard one of my favorite theologians, Michael Horton, he used the analogy of a pinata to describe this. I don't remember where he said this, but I remember him saying it. What do you do with a piñata? A piñata is raised up at a party and some little kid, he's blindfolded or she is blindfolded, and they come up with a, a stick when this thing is lifted up and they whack it, beat it with a stick a couple times, and all of its insides are poured out to bless all the members of the party, to bless all the people who are there at the party and, and, and to give them all these little goodies and, and they're all dispersed to be enjoyed by all the partygoers. Well, in a similar way, Christ is raised up and seated at the right hand of God. And when he is exalted to his throne, his gifts and blessings are dispersed to all of his people. Ephesians 4, 8, when Christ ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. And the gifts he's talking about there in Ephesians 4, 8 are are, uh, the officers in the church, like the apostles, prophets, and evangelists who wrote the Bible, and then pastor teachers who who teach the Bible today. Uh, But really, the same could be said of all spiritual gifts. He ascended on high, and he gave gifts to men. And we're going to get to spiritual gifts later in this this series, but for now, I want to kind of narrow in on, on, on how he disseminates his gifts to his people. He disseminates his gifts to his people. We need to understand this, that he didn't just give gifts to people, plural, when he ascended to the throne. He gave the gift to his people. In his ascension, he gave the gift, the capital G gift, the gift from whom comes all the other gifts. And Peter talks about this in his sermon in Acts 2.33. We we just quoted it. He was exalted to the right hand of God, and therefore he has poured out the Holy Spirit upon his people. In his ascension, he gave the promise of the Father, which brings us to the second part. Jesus ascended to send the Spirit. Now in verse 1 of uh, chapter 1 of Acts, Luke writes another somewhat peculiar thing. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
So Luke, who's the, the author of Acts, also wrote the gospel according to Luke, and, and, and he's compiling all of this information for this Greek man named Theophilus. Theophilus is said to have kind of funded his project so that he could take several years to do this. And notice what he tells Theophilus when he sends him the book of Acts. He's, he doesn't say, in my gospel that I wrote, I wrote all about that uh, Jesus did and taught, but now I'm writing to you about all that Jesus, or all that the church did and taught. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, in my gospel, I told you all about what Jesus began to do and teach. Meaning that Acts must be the continuation of what Jesus did and taught. Like he wasn't finished after his ascension. He's still at work. His absence here doesn't really mean his absence. Instead, the ascension actually means the fullness of his presence comes. And he tells us how in verse 5 of Acts 1 here, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, so here he's distinguishing between water baptism and spirit baptism. Water baptism and spirit baptism are not the same thing. But the comparison between the two is useful in helping us understand spirit baptism. Spirit baptism is the spirit coming to fill us and overcome us with his presence. Now if you think about water baptism, what takes place? The, uh, a, a person is immersed in water by a pastor in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, take that picture and think of it in terms of spirit baptism. Only now, it's, it's not a pastor administering this baptism, it's Jesus. And this baptism is, is not with water, but with the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus immerses us into the life of the Spirit. And maybe another way to say this, uh, uh, another way to say you will be baptized with the Spirit not many days from now could be to say you will be overcome with the presence of the Spirit not many days from now. Baptism with the Spirit means to be plunged into the life of God and his people. It's actually the same thing we talk about when we talk about being born again or regenerated. And we'll discuss it at length later in the series. But suffice it to say now, regeneration, the new birth, being born again, spirit baptism being, is, is our being brought out of spiritual death and into spiritual life. It's the Spirit of God giving us new hearts, hearts with God's law written on them, hearts that trust God. It was promised all throughout the Old Testament, this this coming baptism with the Spirit. And in Acts, baptism with the Spirit is also called being filled with the Spirit. It's called receiving the gift of the Spirit. It's called the Spirit being poured out, the Spirit falling on people. These These are all ways that Luke tends to describe the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and they're all his ways of discussing the same concept. And what they're all getting at is this, that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, true God of true God, comes to take up residence in God's people. Okay, he comes to dwell in God's people. And here's one thing made clear from Jesus. This is better like spirit baptism, being filled with the spirit, the spirit being poured out, the spirit falling on his people is better than if Jesus would have stayed with us here on the earth. John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says that it's actually better for him to ascend to heaven and to leave his people Because if he ascends to heaven, he will send the Holy Spirit. I know that might seem counterintuitive to us, because if Jesus was walking the earth right now in our resurrected bodies, that would would help with a lot of things, wouldn't it? So how is it better that he goes? It's because if he ascends to heaven, 
He sends the Holy Spirit, and the coming of the Holy Spirit means that we not only have God walking beside us, but we have God inside us, dwelling in us. This is the promise of the Father. This is the baptism with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in, to make his home in God's people. Meaning that no longer is God's temple made up of brick and mortar. That's why the, 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 the veil in the temple tore in half when Jesus died. Now God's temple is made up of flesh and blood. It's us. It's God's people. God's people are God's temple because the Holy Spirit is present inside of us. In the coming of the Holy Spirit, we are given an unbreakable, eternal union with God himself. We are made one with God himself. And if you're anything like me, this is huge because because at times we can be tempted. I, I, I don't know if you struggle with this. At times I can be tempted to think that God must be disgusted with me or growing tired of me because of my, my ongoing struggle with sin, that he's tired of us and our weakness and our sinfulness. But far from that being true, Christian, his great desire from eternity past, which has now come to fruition, is to dwell in you and to be in union and communion with you forever. He's not disgusted with you. He's not growing tired of you. His great plan from eternity past was to be close to you closer to you than anyone else. His great plan from eternity past was to be in you and for you to be in him in a relational and spiritual union that can never be broken, closer to you than your spouse is. And that's why Luke can say that Acts is the continuation of what Jesus did and taught. Although Jesus is absent bodily, the Spirit collapses the distance between him and us. The Spirit makes us one with Jesus, spiritually, mysteriously, organically, So much so that Paul says in Ephesians 1 that we are actually seated with Christ in heaven. We're seated with him there as he is seated and exalted at the right hand of God. And not only that, but Acts 1-1 here, he's actually in us and with us during our sojourn on the earth. That's why Jesus can say in the Great Commission, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He's present with us, his people, in such a way that when we're teaching and working, he is teaching and working through us. That's what the ascension and the coming of the Spirit means for us. It's actually better than Jesus staying on the earth uh, bodily with us. It's actually better than God walking beside us. It's God present inside of us. Christ ascended in order to be closer to us. It means to reference a sweet 90s evangelical fad that, that we don't need to merely ask WWJD, what would Jesus do? As if the life of Jesus among us is just something merely in the past. No, he is alive and seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, and he has sent his spirit to dwell in our hearts. He's still at work in this world that he loves. That's why we can ask, uh, what is Jesus doing? W-I-J-D. Maybe we need new bracelets. We're able to be a part of that now in a real and tangible way in the here and now in Dayton, Ohio, 2018. In the ascension, Jesus releases his presence and power into our lives by pouring his Holy Spirit out on us. And not only that, but this, it's for a specific purpose that he does this. He then also releases us into the world as his people, as his people of his presence and power. Which brings us to the third part. Jesus sent the Spirit to send us. Luke records Jesus' words in verses 6 to 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I'm going to speak to this very briefly, because we're running out of time. 
We're going to talk more about this in later the series, and it's, it's warm in here. He says to the apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, there's obviously a special sense in which this is true of the apostles. They were witnesses to Christ's resurrection. They, they saw him. They ate with him. They were taught by him for 40 days after his resurrection. They were witnesses to this in a special way. But there's a little line in there, and to the end of the earth. And that would also lead us to believe that this call to be witnesses extends to the rest of the church as well. Meaning that you and I, Veritas, and every other local church, and every other Christian in the universe, like we are witnesses. And let's be clear, because, because if you have any church background now, you're probably thinking about an activity over and against an identity. But he's talking about witness as an identity here, not merely an activity. Meaning that wherever you are, you are filled with the Holy Spirit in order to be a witness for King Jesus. Wherever your home is, you are sent there to be a representative of Jesus. Wherever your place of employment or education is, you are sent there to be a representative of Jesus. Wherever you go to get coffee in the morning, wherever your kid plays soccer, wherever you you go in the evenings for recreation, you are sent there as a representative of King Jesus himself. That's what the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in your life means. You are a representative of Jesus, a witness for King Jesus. Now, you shouldn't think about witness as something you merely do as much as you think about being a witness as something you are. And if you are a witness, if it's an identity, then it's something that permeates all your life. It's not like a hat that you can put on and take off. You do all the things that you're already doing with the intention of being a witness for the risen and ascended Christ. Everywhere you go, everything you do, you are going there and doing what you're doing there as a representative for the king. And to view yourself that way, that completely reorients your perspective and your priorities, doesn't it? It completely reorients our perspective and our priorities because being a witness and a representative of of another means that your marching orders comes from that person. You don't make your own marching orders. You don't get to make this up for yourself. So often I meet Christians that have such a strange, unbiblical perspective of what they're supposed to do with their lives. They they suffer from, from what we might call mission creep, things creeping in and distracting from the actual mission. They think that Christians are called to to take back this country for God or to to make America great again or some other made-up thing that God never called us to do. Or or, or, or that's maybe the the pleated pants thing. Maybe you're a millennial, you wear skinny jeans, and you say, we're sent out to the world to change the world and to, to transform the culture. That's not what Jesus called us to do. You you may put it in non-patriotic terms, but it's still just the same thing. That's not what Jesus called us to do. And here's the thing: that's actually easier saying adopting pithy quotes like that, posting pithy things on social media is much easier than actually being a witness in your ordinary, mundane, everyday life. That's easier than being patient and exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit with your children and spouse when they're annoying you. That's easier than sharing and defending the faith with a, with a, a hostile coworker with gentleness. That's easier than taking time out of your day to buy a meal for that beggar who asks you when you're walking the streets. And I think we often choose the slogans and the the pithy social media quotes because it's easier. It's easier than repenting and dying to yourself in order to be a faithful witness for another. We want to do our own thing instead. 
But listen, our, our priorities are no longer our comfort, our ease, our pleasure, even our safety. Our priority is being representatives of Jesus, being the presence of Jesus to our neighborhoods and to the nations, being the presence of Jesus to our children, being an ambassador, a representative of Jesus to our families, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, being a representative of Jesus wherever it is we are and whatever we find ourselves doing. And we're called to pursue that over and against comfort and pleasure and ease and safety and all the rest of it. We're called to be a people who sacrifice our time, our treasure, our talent to make that happen. You know, we often, uh, we, we, we quoted Paul's letter here to the Ephesians earlier, Ephesians 4, where he's boasting about the enthronement and the exaltation of Jesus. Jesus is enthroned above heaven and earth in the ascension. And you know something ironic about that is that Paul was writing that letter from prison. He was writing that letter from prison. But from Paul's perspective, he's not sitting in prison because Jesus isn't risen and ascended. He's writing that letter from prison because Jesus is risen and ascended. He is the ascended Lord. And that gives him a completely new set of priorities. That gives him a a, a new set of priorities of being a witness for Christ, being a representative of Christ over and against his safety and his, his pleasure and his ease and his comfort. That's why pushing through the discomfort and sharing the gospel with your neighbor actually makes sense. That's why serving and sacrificing for Jesus, even when it hurts, actually makes sense. That's why selling everything you have and and moving to a foreign land to plant churches actually makes sense. That's why faithfully attending to the means of grace Sunday in and Sunday out actually makes sense. That's why welcoming young children in need into your home actually makes sense. That's why supporting your local church and its worship and mission actually makes sense. That's why speaking up and laboring for social justice, for the lives of the unborn, for racial equality, for the stranger, for the oppressed, for the poor actually makes sense. Jesus is exalted and enthroned and he has sent the spirit to indwell us in order for us to make him known in the earth. Our priority in the here and now, and this is me concluding, our priority in the here and now, our purpose for existence is to be a conduit of Christ's teaching and doing where he has sent us, wherever it is that he sent us. We're called as a body of believers to be a continuance of what Jesus began to do and teach when he walked the earth. That's why he ascended to be our king and sent the spirit, and that's why he sends us into the world. Listen, Veritas, the local church is Jesus Christ come to town. That's what Veritas is. That's what every other gospel church in town is. It's Jesus Christ come to town to continue the work of Jesus, to continue the teaching of Jesus in the earth. The local church is Jesus come to town. Let that change your perspective. Let that rearrange your priorities. In his ascension, Jesus releases his presence and power into our lives by pouring the Holy Spirit out on us. And then he releases us into the world to be his presence in the world. May it be so. Let's pray.